0: Welcome to another episode of the Dentology podcast where we discuss the business of dentistry. In this podcast series we'll be discussing all the non-clinical aspects of dentistry from goodwill values, finance, marketing, how to buy and sell a dental practice mindset through to where you can invest your money in team management issues. My name is Andy Acton and I'm joined by my co-host Chris Strevens. Let's jump straight into it. Welcome to our latest episode of Dentology, the Business of Dentistry podcast. And today we're joined by Emmett Scott. Emmett is a number one best-selling author of The DSO Secrets, The Ultimate Guide to Building Your Dental Empire. So we be interested to find out more about that. The co-founder and CEO of Community Dental Partners, which offers mentorship, CPD, raising finance, helping your team, and a whole raft of support to dental practices. So welcome, Emmett. How are you doing? Great. Yeah. Hi, Thanks Ellen. so
1: much. I feel international right now. So it's great to uh, be with you.
0: Yeah. It. Exactly. No, it's, 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 it, I think it's always lovely. when you get,
2: get our flags out just to emphasise it. So <laughs> yeah, Cross yeah. Atlantic.
0: Yeah, reaching across the ponds, reaching across the pond. But it's great if you get perspectives from people from different um, views from across the world, because mm, we're all joined definitely. up, we're all connected. So I'm fascinated to hear what you've got to, what you've got to um, tell us today. Yeah. Be- before we start, could you just give us a bit of background on yourself, who you are and how your career weaved you into dentistry? How did that all come about?
1: Yeah. So um, I graduated in accounting. I went into financial planning. I noticed that a lot of uh, individuals who were coming in to make investments were entrepreneurs. And m- the question I always ask myself is, why aren't they scaling their own business? So I got into helping <clears throat> entrepreneurs become executives, scaling their business. And my best friend, from the age of two, reached out to me. At the time, I had a radio show called The Entrepreneur Life. He actually called into the radio show. Of course, that's what a best oh. friend would do, and started asking questions, <laughs> you know, um, somewhat heckling me. But basically, like, how do you scale uh, a dental practice? He wanted to start just one dental practice, etc. And as I looked at the opportunity within the space. Uh, his name's Dr. Evans or Chad, I call him. I say, Chad, I, I think there's an opportunity for you to have a much bigger impact. Would you be interested? So anyway, he wanted to do pediatric. I said, man, dentistry just like sucks. From a marketing perspective, it's just terrible. There's nothing about this. Like we actually have idioms in the US. I'm sure it's similar in the UK of like we when we say th- something's terrible, we say it's like a root canal. Right. Like we have, a <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. That, that talk about dentistry. So I was like, if you want to do this really amazing, and he wanted to do pediatric. Um, He has seven kids. He's fluent in Spanish. He served a church mission in Chile. I, I said, okay, what do kids love? Right. They love like a Disneyland type experience. So we actually <laughs> created a dental practice. That's a storybook. It's got this mascot, Charlie the chipmunk. The kids are called back as prince or princess. They get gold coins along the way. <laughs> At the end, they get crowned for their bravery and dentistry. They get a balloon. They get a sticker. We ask them if they have any money. They have their gold coins. They spend the gold coins. Mom gets a sticker because she's always freaking out. And then they get a cookie on the way out. And they're like, wow, dentistry is really cool. I love this. Yeah. We had a thousand first visits in the first three weeks and we're like, wow, we really have something Whoa. here. So we started to scale that model and build out support services for dental practices at that point. But that, that's kind of how I got into it originally is my best friend said, I need some help opening a dental practice. You
0: know? Wow. What wow. a really cool take wow. on marketing as well. Because that's not me- just small scale stuff. That's kind of like you say, that's giving it a Disney, Disney experience. But
2: do you remember there was an American guy? And I can't remember his name. He was a dental consultant. I'm trying to think of it. And he said that uh, one of the things he does is uh, he says to people, yeah, it's okay to uh, eat cookies and drink milk. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, it's like that sort of quintessential American thing of eating cookies chocolate cookies and having milk and he said it's okay he yeah. said and i have it in my practices i can't remember for the life of me who he was but it, it was a whole it was a while ago but it was this whole change of the way you look at dentistry instead of painful and hurting <laughs> that's and right expensive. it's about he,
1: oral he hygiene it. right it's not yeah. about abstinence of you know yeah. eating right especially sweets is it, it's a tough sale to tell kids never eat sweets again you'll have healthy teeth it's much mm. better to start teaching oral hygiene and if you can associate it with a positive experience i think that mm. would be the goal right so so
0: it was that initial success with your friend in in his practice that then the light bulb moment of dentistry is looking like a a sector that you could work in develop and and help to to grow
1: yeah it was just like we want to have a bigger impact okay so let's hire some more associates let's open another one of these practices i have to be honest i didn't know what a dso was or dental support organization you know i didn't know any of that concept i'm just helping my best friend out here on how to scale so i'm just kind of following the path of smart business and then you know pretty soon we're like Well, we should probably centralize some of these services. It really doesn't make sense for our billing process to be in the practice. We should centralized those so that we can have one person overseeing it then it was like well we should probably centralize the calls that come in one of the things i hate in healthcare, i hate in any business is when you walk up to the counter and someone's on the phone i kind of feel like i should oh, pick hmm. up like i should pick up my cell phone and call into them i'm like hi i'm the <laughs> oh. person in front of you right so <laughs> i i just thought well what if we took that out of the practice so that the front hmm. desk people. We're always focused on who's in the lobby. So I was just kind of following that path, that journey. And of course that started building infrastructure internally. Mm -hmm. Accounting services, you know, we were on Dentrix at the time. I don't know all the practice management softwares you guys have access to there, but um, at the time, this was 12 years ago in 2010, it took 12 hours to run an AR report. Like that's how long you click the software. And then you waited 12 (laughs) hours for it to process the accounts receivable report. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is going to take forever. (laughs) And then anytime I ask them about, you know, how do I scale this? Can I have access to the back end? They're like, no. Now, a lot of that's changed in the last 10 years, but I'm like, wow to do this on an enterprise level is gonna be a big Mm. challenge. So we Mm. started hiring programmers. I mean, it just became this whole thing. If you wanna have bigger impact, you have to make like massive investment.
2: Oh, it's fascinating. It's really interesting, isn't it? I love the thing about the call set. So we occasionally do seminars about, you know, developing your practice. And it's one of our big bugbears. We said you spend all this money on a website, all this money on this branding. Mm. And then basically when someone rings your practice, you know, even there, they go, oh, sorry, can I put you on hold? And it's like, oh, hang on <laughs> a minute, this is a new client. <laughs> and he yeah, spent all I his had money. this
1: really <laughs> interesting aha because we had we had moved back to Texas. This is where Chad was, and I was helping him. And, and we realized this was going to be something much bigger. So my wife's looking for a new doctor, an OBGYN, you know, and she comes to me and she's like, oh my gosh, I just found this great doctor. And she goes through like how amazing she is. And I'm thinking, wow, she like really spent some time interviewing this doctor. And so i'm like so have you been in the office she said no, no no but their front desk was really sweet on the phone yeah and i'm like mm-hmm. it just like was this aha of you know for all of the schooling the doctors do for all of the capabilities they have
2: yeah as it a consumer so front desk.
1: Mm. we we judge everything <laughs> by that one phone call i'm like holy smokes the front desk has like this incredible amount of power and yeah. oftentimes we, we don't put the focus and energy and investment that we need to into that scripting.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Before we get into uh, what you do in DSOs and stuff, can you just talk us through how's COVID impacted dental practices in the U.S.? Because we've obviously had the, the UK experience, and I don't know if you're aware, but back in 2020, um, all dental practices had to shut for three months from the 23rd of March to the 8th of June. Um, they weren't yep. allowed to, to continue operating. Then they've reopened, then they've stayed open since. But what's been the impact in the U.S. on, on dental practices?
1: will is actually very similar and it's super sad because ada which is the largest dental association here in the us you know actually had so many phone calls from frankly older dentists kind of encouraging the shutdown of the industry that that's what they did it was very disappointing i'm president of the adso which is the association of dental support organizations we pushed back because so many dentists that we worked with said, wait, we're essential care. Like, how is the liquor Mm. and bars open, but (laughs) we're not essential? So I think that the impact ultimately, you know, breakdowns before breakthroughs oftentimes, right? So Mm. I think what it did is it allowed everyone to step back and say, who are we in the marketplace? And one of the places Mm. that I believe dentistry has really struggled. Is they've kind of been the younger stepchild to the rest of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And my argument has been that dentistry not only should have a seat at the table, but really should it be at the head of the table for healthcare? Mm-hmm. It's where healthcare starts, and it's it's also like one of the best preventative healthcare models that we have. I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. again everything in the UK, but. In, in dentistry in the U S, we're the most proactive preventative healthcare. We're calling saying, Hey, come in for your six month appointment. Like there's a cadence of communication. I don't mm, get that mm. from any of my other healthcare providers. Zero. That's very true. Right? Yeah. So to me, like we can actually teach the rest of healthcare how to do preventative care. Instead, we were sitting there saying, Hey, let's, let's shut down. Um, I think we're having a awesome, you know, response now to that, to say that was wrong, that's not who we want to be. And a lot of the younger generation coming up, I think, wants to stand up and be integrated with healthcare and lead healthcare. Hmm. So that's what I'm excited about.
2: I'll I tell you what's interesting you saying that, Emma. It's, one, it's a, one of the things that comes up quite often in conversation, isn't it, that the um, in the UK there's a perceived – Which is definitely improving, but a lack of respect for, for dentists. You know, they're, they're either painful, bloody, Cost a lot of money, whatever. And there, that you sort of have, um, you know, healthcare and GPs and surgeries and hospitals. And you've got dentists sort of down here. And it's quite interesting because one of the things that people say is that, oh, yeah, in America, in America, the dentist is up here. He's, he's seen as, you know, one of the, the preeminent parts of healthcare. And it's, and, and it's yeah, fascinating. No, we have the same problem. You're sort of almost saying you're not. It's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: My, my mom has a great saying is like, if you don't like being walked on, get up, right? And so mm. I think a lot of dentistry has blamed others for their position, when in the reality is they just need to step up and assume their position of leadership. Mm. Right? So when dentists stop acting like their only teeth doctor, when they stop acting, when they stop arguing with each other, frankly, which is also, I think, a big thing COVID has done is kind of reduce the noise down. And said man we really have to work together here Hmm. you know i i when i first got into the space i'd go on dental forums and i'm like this is the most brutal industry you know dentists would go on there and ask for help and then like other guys would just be criticizing them they wouldn't be helping them i i think that Hmm. that is changing dramatically like a house divided doesn't stand so as we come together work together I think there's a huge opportunity to provide more leadership. So when dentists tend to complain about their position, um, you know, my response to that is, well, then step up. Like nobody's mm. like keep them in that position. There's a huge opportunity, I think, for dentists to lead out. Dentists have the most interactions with the public more than any other healthcare mm. provider. What should have happened during COVID, in my opinion? Is one of the first individuals we should have reached out to is dentist and said, how can you help with testing? How can mm. you help with vaccinations? <clears throat> hey, 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 dentist, have you ever given shots before? OK, yeah, yeah. Have, you have you ever used a, a needle yeah. vaccine? <laughs> we'd really like your help with, by the way, you don't have to find the right nerve within the mouth. You just have to push it into the arm. Like, can you handle Mm. that? Right? So Mm. why didn't that happen? And why did like pharmacists end up doing vaccine? Because dentists didn't lead out. I mean, that's really just Mm. what it comes down to.
0: So that's that's exactly the same experience in the UK. Dentists weren't part of the vaccination program in the UK. And I know lots of dentists who were saying the same thing, which is we are perfectly able and capable of doing this. We've got the environment Totally. We've got the skills, we've got the capacity. Yet they weren't engaged as part so of a needle.
2: It. Yeah, in your own. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. could have probably done it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you
1: think it's about what dentists have to do on a day-to-day basis, and I think a lot hmm. of um, where they take a lot of flack is we don't step back, and they don't step back and say, "Hey, we're the ones providing surgery while the patient's still awake. We're the ones hmm. that have to figure out like a complexity." of retail surgical procedures no other doctor doc most doctors get to take them in a back room of a hospital put them under and then go ahead and work on them like dentists have to figure out how to do this in kind of real time etc it's a lot of complexity i have a ton of respect for i think Mm. dentists have to have more respect for what they're really doing which is incredible
0: you know Mm. Yeah. So on the on the DSO side of things, the dental support organization, that's not a term that's commonly used in the UK. Um, the services within a DSO are, but it's not a term that's commonly banded around. Can you just talk us through, you know, what a DSO does, how it works, and what would be the, the typical profile of a practice that would benefit from using a DSO in the States?
1: Yeah, so... I'd like to break the, the, the acronym down, dental support organization. I think definitions are really important, right? So to me, thinking about dental support organization, what, is, what does that mean? I don't care about the entity structure, legal, you know, cash flow, et cetera. Mm. Just at the end of the day, when do I become a dental support organization? And my argument is the day you hire an associate, you're a DSO. Because when that associate comes in, they don't say to themselves, Hey, I'm really excited to be here. Can I handle your HR, your IT services, the accounting work? Right. No, no, no. They say, Hey, you're going to handle all that for me. Right. My job is to see the patients, take care of the patients. I want to have more autonomy to be able to take care of the patients and focus on my clinical mm. capability and not worry about any of that back end stuff. And so. To me, I think it's really important from a mindset perspective for any practice owner to study what DSOs are doing because I think, and and that's why I wrote the book DSO Secrets, you know, how to build your dental empire. Mm. Because when you go through it, what you really see is how do I support associates appropriately? One really interesting thing that happens is the day you hire an associate, your customer changes. See, originally your customer's the patient. But when you hire an associate, the patient is now the customer of your customer. Your job is to bring in patients so that that associate can see them, right? That's how you're going to have bigger impact. Your job is to make sure there's accounting services so that that associate gets paid appropriately. Your job is to make sure you recruit staff so that that associate has the right support. I think that mindset, I don't care whether you call it a DSO or some other kind of support platform. What's important is who is your customer and how are you going to take care of them? What's really deceiving is I'll hear from people, well, I'm paying them a paycheck, so that's not really my customer. And that's, that's wrong because they're either your highest producing revenue source is an associate. So I would say your success and failure in scaling dental has everything to do with how well can you support an associate.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that definition is really important. I'd be very surprised if there's many dental practice owners in the UK who think of their associates or their therapists or their hygienists as their customer. No, not at all. I think they would see see those people as working with them in their business, but mm-hmm. not somebody that they're serving. Um, so I think that as a distinction is a fascinating insight.
2: Out of interest, are they self employed <coughs> individuals, Emma, or are they employed individuals? Well,
1: yeah, they're supposed to be employees that, I mean, for what the IRS tax structure is, they, 99% of the time, they should be an employee of the practice. Oh, okay. But but again, I think, you know, accounting and gap accounting really has this all messed up. Because if you look at a and l the employees are all expenses, right? Mm-hmm. And then my chair is an asset over on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. If we, if we use that, it can really mess with our paradigm when the reality is our, our people are our best asset. The chair is a mm. depreciating you know, commodity, right? So mm. we need to be careful not to let the fact that we have this payroll system and this P&L that calls them an expense change what's really going on from a capitalistic system. What's really going on is that individual is working there because I am providing them a set of services that allows them to create revenue for my business model. Mm-hmm. And to the extent I do that really well, more people want to work with me and produce revenue for mm-hmm. me. To the extent mm-hmm. that I do that really poorly, they walk out the door. So mm-hmm. again, I think some dentists have perceived the DSO model as private equity investor money's coming in and gobbling up dental practices, et cetera. The reality is the dentist is in this incredible place of control, where they get mm. to vote on who's doing things the best.
0: You know? mm. So, obviously, that. the DSOs actually own dental practices. Then, because obviously, it, it, in the UK, you've got um, you've got corporate bodies. So these are large dental groups um, that own in some cases, 20, 30, 40 practices, in some cases, several hundred practices. And they would obviously centralise all those those head office type functions um, mm-hmm. in a head office type facility. And then the individual units would deliver the dentistry. So I can see where that would kind of link with being a, a DSO type structure. And I know in the USA, you know, lots of the, the large groups out there, like Heartland Dental and Aspen Dental have got hundreds of practices in their groups. At the very bottom end, where you have an independent dental practice, at what point do those practices tend to engage with a DSO-type organization to outsource those admin functions and concentrate on the dentistry? Is there a tipping point Mm. where people kind of keep it in-house? Yeah, and do they get to a certain point where they go, right, if we want to scale and we want to grow, let's focus on the dentistry. Let's outsource the business side of things. And that's when they engage with the DSO.
1: Yeah, so um, I heard a couple of questions. One is around ownership. In the US, state by state has different rules. The majority of states right. say only clinicians can actually own the practice entity. So in order for a DSO to provide support, they'll have a management contract with that entity in a couple right. states, states. <clears throat> the, the DSO, which is really an LLC structure, can actually own the dental practice. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to keep, you're going to, I'm going to sound like I'm just repeating myself because at the end of the day, ownership is about power. And the mm-hmm. majority of power is in the hands of the dentist deciding yeah. whether they want to work there or not. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So who really owns everything? The dentist owns everything. Who's really in the support role? Everybody else. Right. Because as soon as the dentist, the only one that has more power than the dentist is the patient because right? I've never been able to see a successful dental practice that doesn't have a dentist or doesn't have patients. <laughs> right. They kind of <laughs> need that combo in uh, order to uh. succeed. Everything else is then ancillary to that. But to your question on like when should a practice decide to engage with a DSO, you know, I, I I think it's just an element of anxiety, frankly. You know, when when people say, How should I build out my org, org chart? I say, follow your anxieties. Like, where are you feeling stress, (laughs) pressure, noise? Go ahead and get the right amount of resource to move yourself up to a higher level of strategic thinking and strategic Mm -hmm. power. So if I'm feeling noise around accounting services and I can find a vendor who solves that noise and gives me everything I need, then that's good enough. Then I'll move Mm -hmm. to my next constraint and my next issue. And now I need marketing help and now I need this. Um, I'm part of an organization, I'm partners in an organization called uh, DEO, Dentist Entrepreneur Organization. I'll give that website. It's deodentalgroup.com. It's a peer-to-peer network of dentist entrepreneurs who are all trying to figure out exactly what you just asked about. And they'll Uh share kind of best practices, how they might be using vendors to scale and have more impact. How they might set up their org tru- uh, structure internally or externally to be able to have more impact. So that's a powerful way. I think if you're kind of in those initial stages, you're a single practice owner, you've got two locations, whatever it might be. Um, DEO Dental Group is a great resource. And you know we have I- individuals coming from Singapore, uh, Australia, all over. Um, that are really kind of bringing best practices. Because at the end of the day, this is entrepreneurship, right? How do I have mm-hmm. more impact? Yeah. And um, so I, w- I would encourage people there. I, w- I would also say just another resource is I have a podcast called DSO Secrets. And we have a Facebook group called DSO Secrets. So if people want to come there, it's been going long enough. You can almost just do a little facebook search within the group and like okay i want to do a call center like what's everything everyone's asked about doing a call center or billing team or whatever so
0: that's good out of interest emmy in the uk um at dental school there's zero time Um, spent on business, which from (coughs) from a patient point of view, I get it. You know, I want my dentist to be clinically strong. I'm not that fussed whether they understand an Excel spreadsheet or the difference between advertising and marketing. However, it does raise the issue that when... The young dental students qualify and move into a dental practice, even as an associate, you're a self-employed business person. What's that like in the US? Is there any time devoted to to the business of dentistry, or is it the same same. as pure clinical?
1: No, absolutely the same. I mean, one of the things Chad told me right at the beginning, and I think a competitive advantage in the marketplace is to be humble. It it just is. It's not. Mm. just like a good spiritual emotional principle it's a great business principle and one of the things chad told me is he goes man i had this big aha while i was doing hours and hours and hours of clinical study some poor guy was studying marketing (laughs) another guy was studying accounting another guy was studying i.t you know some gal was studying hr compliance etc like why am i going to want to learn all of those different things like this is Mm -hmm. what i'm passionate about and so You know, no matter what what business model you're trying to scale, whether it's being a plumber, electrician, an attorney, a marketing person, you're not going to know everything. Now, I think what's really painful about a clinician, there's so much to learn in dental school about the anatomy and and et cetera of doing these modalities and surgeries. And then you walk out, even as an associate, 95% of your time is non-clinical. Like, how do I run an x-ray tech and communicate with them effectively? How do I work with the mm. practice manager? How do I talk to a patient about certain things? There's so much just in that circle. You know, I, I, I call it the ace clinician in my book, learning to have availability, capability, and engagement. The engagement part is so heavy. Like, all of these scripting and communications and conversations that no one's ever... Told you about you're like relying on your family culture <laughs> to run a mm. business, you know. So there's a lot of new things to learn. To me, the competitive advantage opportunity is get a big support system around you. Like mm. start mm. doing getting mentors, get coaches. You know, don't think that dental school is the end. Think of it as the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and it's I like that- now that I've finished that part, now my <laughs> real education.
0: Yes. Mm. You know. and I think very mm. often young dentists you know start so in the UK you spend f- four years in dental school then one year as a foundation dentist applying those practical skills with a with a mentor in a in a practice and if you go to a good practice, you're off to a flying start. If you've got a really good mentor Someone and, and you, somebody yeah. that helps develop your communication skills and your chairside experience, that's great. But if you end up with somebody who's old and crusty mm. in their attitudes and, and how they approach things, you're on to a bad start. and I guess because you've got no reference point, you don't really know whether you've had a, mm. a good or a bad start. And that can put you on, on the wrong path from day one. Mm. And I, 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 yeah, you talk about the ace the principle, which I think is great. And you also talk about creating patient experiences that compete in other industries. Mm. What, what other industries would you, would you look to in terms of kind of emulating? You know, you talked about that work you did with your, your friend kind of emulating the Disney type experience yeah. of kids. Are, are there other industries that you look at and say, if that could be imported into dentistry that would raise the game for everybody
1: yeah i think one really important perspective is to know that dentists are not competing against other dentists like the chances that some patients are all sitting around going so what do you think of dr joe versus dr henry versus dr sheila you know nobody's doing that right what people are thinking in their head is do I want to watch Netflix, Amazon, go to the dentist, go to the water park, you know, go to a restaurant. Mm. That's what we're competing against. And, you know, Amazon has created so much entitlement in our brains. Mm. Like we need everything so convenient. Listen, I'm the same way. I'll go on and look for something. And then for me, I go to Amazon, see if I can get it quicker. Right. I just want convenience. Mm. Now I want simplicity, Mm. what patients are experts in is not clinical capability. Like no one's like, hey, look at this crown. Isn't it amazing? You know, look at this Mm. filling. Can you can you believe? I mean, the margins that this dentist did is just no, nobody's doing that. (laughs) Right. What people are doing, it's like, oh, yeah, the staff was really friendly. Oh, man, their website's super convenient. Man, Mm. the doctor took time with me and I felt understood. Right. So again, what's really painful is these doctors have spent so much time doing clinical capability learning. And we as customers kind of just are entitled and expect like no one walks in and go, wait, you guys do fillings here. This is going to be amazing. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it's like, no, no, no. I just expect you to be able to do that. So Mm. I think one of the things you can do is the nice thing is whether you're a doctor a front desk, whatever, you're also a consumer of products every day. Just Mm. ask yourself, like, what do you love and what do you hate and why, and then come integrate that into your practice. You know, uh, you mentioned mm. this, like, I hate it when people aren't answering the phone. I hate it when it's, I have to go through a, a big phone tree. I hate it when it's hard to schedule. I hate it when the website isn't clear on what services they provide. I mm. I hate it when I can't see reviews, you know, like whatever it is you hate, just go solve for that because at the end of the day, that's what you're competing against. Um, mm. In the U.S., 60% of people don't go to the dentist regularly.
2: Okay. Wow. Uh, See, that's really interesting so because in the UK, about, it's, a, it's, a, it's a similar stat as well. Yeah. I so we thought, call that the, the American side. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Emma. Yeah, I was saying it, I always imagined Americans were at the dentist more, especially as quite often it's that sort of there's um, a bit of almost a running joke about how bad uh, the people's teeth in the UK are, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah i think the vertical is probably a little deeper at times in america but that's that's really starting to normalize out i think globally you're even seeing that you know we were probably some of the first to adopt aligner technology and things like Mm. that like ortho's been more important at times but the reality is is if you we call it penetration rate in, in business. Like how much is a market penetrated to the consumer? Mm, cell mm-hmm. phones are 120% penetration rate. <laughs> in other words, mm-hmm. there's some people who have more than one cell phone, right? Like you can't get yeah. more more penetration rate than over 100%. If you think about dentistry at 40%, if we could get it to 80%, we doubled the oh. entire industry. We're not competing yeah, with each other. We're just sucky at actually providing services. Yeah, so definitely. what we're competing against is the heart, mind, money of all the other <clears throat> industries that are grabbing those consumers. <clears throat> and to the extent that we can get better at that, because the nice thing is, like, we're the beginning of health care. You know, we have a really good reason to try to compete and try to get people to come in on a regular basis. Mm. There's a lot of things within healthcare we can solve. So it's a cool mission to be passionate about. But we have to be if we're just using like we're better than another dentist, we're not thinking high enough.
0: Mm. You know, if mm-hmm. we're thinking mm. like
1: we've got to compete with Amazon. OK, now we're starting to think about this at the right level.
0: So. Mm-hmm what's interesting a lot of you say is is how you made me feel and like you say it's not necessarily about clinical at all it's just how and we all know what feelings are you know we know if somebody makes us feel special we know if an experience was good it becomes memorable Uh, i mean obviously falling out of covid we've all dealt with a lot of crap as a result of covid has there been some good stuff that's come out in the US, from from COVID, yeah. In the UK, a, a lot of people now have really embraced and engaged with virtual consultations. That wasn't really a thing a couple of years ago. Uh, are, are things have things changed in the US in terms of how dental practices operate as a result of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, COVID was a time machine. That's what really COVID was. It accelerated everything into the future, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, we were doing Zoom calls before COVID. But man, we were doing virtual calls like nonstop with COVID. I think everything that was kind of already happening as far as our expectations for convenience, restaurants delivering to our homes, uh, grocery stores delivering to our homes, everything got accelerated in that. So I think we have a big challenge in healthcare that we have to step up. I was talking to a CEO of a hospital. They had Five virtual appointments before COVID for the entire year. They had 2,800 a month after COVID. Right? Imagine like everything they'd have to change (laughs) in order to be able to support that new platform. So, I mean, the five says, yeah, we were moving in that direction. The 2,800 said we're there. You know, we need yeah. we now need to be able to do that on a consistent basis. So I'm actually very excited about it um, around all the change that's happening, because I think at the end of the day, what capitalism does really well is it continues to focus on the customer, the patient first. It focuses yep. on dental support first. It's just accelerated the need for us to do that better faster you know Mm. and so Mm. i think if you go where's my anxiety where's my pain like if you assess that for you personally it's just the speed at which everything has now gone to the next Mm. level Mm. for the consumer Mm. something in the
0: uk that's changed quite a lot in the past couple of years is people focus a lot more on their work-life balance I think pre-pandemic people were kind of working quite hard, lots of people working five, six days a week and trying to sort of squeeze in their life around it. Now in the UK, we're seeing lots of, of... dentists and, and often, you know, associate self-employed dentists who are now quite comfortable working two, three clinical days a week. Has, has, that, has that been the case in the States as well? Are, are people totally. sort of reassessing their, their priorities?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating too, because you have two cultures colliding and they're both from the same individuals with two different hats. As I said, as a consumer, We feel more entitled than ever that we want things now. Mm -hmm. And as the service provider, as the employee, as the team member, we want work-life balance. So Mm -hmm. I want to be able to get on the phone at 9 p.m. at night right, and be able to call a place and then be open. Or I want to get online and be able to schedule whatever I want. And then on the employee side, I want to be home by five o'clock and having dinner with my family. <laughs> you know, So mm. I, I think that technology is going to have to bridge the gap here. I think we're going to have to figure mm. out how to automate things so that the consumer is able to fulfill their entitlement. And whoever does that the best, where it's like, man, I can get online and I can schedule my appointment, change my appointment at any time. I can communicate with people as needed for emergency services at any time. On the other side, we've got to figure out how to do shifts, how to allow people to be home with their families, how to have recreational time, et cetera. So it's it's very challenging. I think um, technology is going to have to bridge the gap.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, without doubt, I think there's i mean there's been a big advancements in digital dentists in the UK uh i think it started yeah sort of 5 7 years ago it's really ramping up at the moment it's you know mm. um even things like intro scammers are now kind of commonplace. Yeah, and, and Diagnostics. Yeah. And virtual consultations. And we met a guy recently who was talking about um, AI coming mm. in as a second opinion yeah. for dentists, yeah. you know, doctors, where, where that's coming in. And I think if you can leverage technology, which then means as it creates time and that time can be truly spent with the patient to offer an enhanced experience. I think we kind of get into somewhere where you're talking about. Mm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We got to commoditize down, systemize down using technology, the parts that aren't as important so that we have the mental, emotional free time to be present with one another's as mm. humans, right? That's mm. it's going to be the interesting competitive advantages, leveraging algorithms and AI to systemize as much as possible to free us up emotionally to be able to engage in more EI emotional intelligence Mm. right So i think those two worlds are going to constantly be leveraging each other you know we're going to get to a place i think where your world is either you're building algorithms and ai or you're really good at leadership relationships or creativity Mm because those are really hard to commoditize
2: Mm. so
1: you're going to have this ai versus ei world and they're just going to work mm. off of each other mm. i think to solve a lot of the world's problems and to provide customer service at a super high touch level
0: mm. so. yeah no absolutely i i i agree with you on that um and yeah it's probably just a case of uh, when when not if mm. your um, your book Emmett, dso secrets um where can folks where can folks grab that
1: yeah so amazon's a, a great place um you got Amazon in the UK, yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they've done quite yeah. well for themselves. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think okay. they're finally called yeah, Amazon. I, I didn't know if they had gone global. I figured they had gone a little global at this point. So, um, yeah, I so Amazon's probably is the so most convenient. Um, we've got an Audible, a Kindle version, hardback, softback, you know, whatever. Um, like I said, podcast is a great way to consume some of the info. DSO Secrets, uh, Facebook page, great place deo dental group um if you want to kind of get deeper uh, involved and then the mm. association of dso's adso.org i think it's the adso.org um great place we have a summit coming up here it's in austin texas uh in two weeks you'll have the largest dso's globally um, there at that conference wow. we had one thing that was really cool about covid is that globally as DSOs, we started working together. So we had China DSOs, Spain, UK, um, Australia, and all these DSO leaders as CEOs, we were meeting. And many of these in the UK, um, several of the CEOs were supporting 250 practices or more. Hmm. so we were able to kind of communicate with each other, what's working, what's not, how are you solving? And though there were differences, at the end of the day, there was a, a lot of similarities, right? It was a lot mm. of humans that were trying to figure mm. out how best to support. So mm-hmm. that was one thing that I loved. A lot of that was through ADSO, um, that we made those connections and started working together uh, to solve these problems, so.
0: Fascinating. Oh, great. It would be good for people to have a look at that. Just changing tack completely. um, I see that you're fluent in in American Sign Language. How did that that come about and why was that? Just a really really interesting skill.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when I was 11 years old, my mom decided she wanted to go back to college, uh, to the university and get uh, a degree, and she decided it was going to be in American Sign Language. Um, At the time, my dad was uh, Bishop of the church. So we have a church that's volunteer in nature. And so that was his responsibility. Deaf people started coming to the church. So I was helping interpret pretty soon when I was about 15 years old, I was interpreting in the universities. It was a great way to make some money. Um, (laughs) and then I, um, got asked to serve a church mission and they asked me to do an ASL mission. So I was volunteering in the deaf schools for two years. Uh, in California and Arizona. And then when I came back, I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm not going to interpret anymore. But then it was the highest uh, paying uh, job at the university. So as I went through school, (laughs) I interpreted uh, for other students um, at the school. So I got a lot of education and a lot of different uh, majors there. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done with this. But then church responsibilities, they've asked me to help volunteer and a lot of things. And then two years ago, we had a young man whose mom's single she really needed some help um she's deaf he's deaf and she said could he come live with us uh, so we've been uh, taking care of him we've basically adopted him for the last two years so now all my family has learned sign language um i have four five boys and my youngest is a, a girl And she's 14 now, and she's, you know, fluent in sign language as well. Oh, great Um, skill. So, yeah, we're kind uh, of passing on here. But,
2: um, yeah. it's an interesting education, uh, though, isn't it? As you were saying, because I bet then, if you're sitting there in those lessons with different Mm. majors, with different sign language, you're picking up, aren't you? you? You know, you're absorbing a huge range of subjects.
1: Yeah, and you actually have to do the translation. ASL is based off of French grammar. Um, So you would think, now this is kind of interesting, ASL versus BSL, you would think because our English is somewhat similar Mm. that the sign language is similar. They're completely different. They're like not even, you know, it's like English and Japanese. Um, Why complicate
0: something? that's already as hard enough as it is what's that <laughs> well, why complicate something that's already hard as it is right. why base it off french when you already speak in english
1: yeah exactly yeah it was uh, a French man gallaudet who started gallaudet university eventually but who brought sign language to america and it's it's interesting when you think about it 76. i mean this is a totally different subject but the um if you're deaf, you're really outside of the other cultures of those who are hearing mm. and speaking. So th- they have mm. their own culture, the way they communicate. You know, they're much more blunt and bold about things. Uh, there's certain rooms like they tend to, to talk in the kitchen because the lighting's better in the kitchen. So we tend to be in the kitchen when we're, <laughs> we're chatting. Things like that you wouldn't think about um, become <laughs> yeah. much more important. So, yeah, the language kind of is on its own journey, separate from hearing uh, verbal languages. So
0: mm.
2: that's But, that's, that's, yeah. but,
0: but linking yeah. back to what you were saying before about um, we know what experiences feel like and you know, mm. the better you are in emotional intelligence, the better you tend to have a, a in terms of a life. Mm. Something like ASL, you can see how that gives you a very different perspective in terms of communication and how you feel and how you make other people feel. So mm. it's quite a unique skill to have, mm, particularly in the world that you're operating.
1: It's, it's really cool. You know, you, now that you say that, we all know that body language is really important, right? And it mm. communicates a lot of our messaging. Mm. In ASL, it's 95% because you don't have voice inflection it, you think about this yeah. right if i if i got on the show and you said hey how are you doing today and i said i'm really i'm really happy yeah you would know yeah. from my voice <laughs> inflection that i might i'm not, not feeding it you know, I'm, not you know, feeding I'm not feeding doing. it <laughs> so the same thing happens in asl your facial expressions is it sarcasm Are hmm. you know are you just kind of faking it or are you truly happy and so it does make you very in tune with people's body language. Wow. You know, yeah. and their I, remember, I
0: remember seeing something ages ago about, and I think it was a deaf person was explaining that yawning and screaming
2: look the same to
0: somebody who's deaf. That's they funny. can't differentiate between the two because yeah. of, of the
2: facial expression. I'm just yeah. fascinated as to whether, because it's French, is there like, as your son, is a sort of like a Gallic shrug? <laughs> you know, in, the, in the, you know, who, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the way, you know, that oh, 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 oh. it's not sort of a very British thing, though. it's got to be a French thing. A,
1: <laughs> there are, there's a lot of like, yeah, physical cues that communicate this whole sentence <laughs> and paragraph of information. It is, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so it's brilliant.
0: Oh, no, that's so, uh, great. That's great. Well, Emmett, we've, we've, we're coming towards the end, but yeah. we always uh, we always ask our, our guests the same two questions at the end of uh, every episode. And, and the first question that we have for you is if you could be the a fly on the wall in a situation or you could watch a, a scenario play out, is there a particular wall that you'd like to be sat on as that fly and watching?
1: You know, one thing I'm really fascinated with right now is all around – Biometrics, bioscience. You know, I, I'm reading Tony Robbins' new book, Life Force. I've been studying stem cells and just what all the all the innovation that is happening there is just it's so exciting to me. Um, so, you know, and then what little we know about the brain and how much we're discovering now. I've been doing brain scans. Um, and you know, having my family do brain scans because they're my guinea pigs. And um, it's so fascinating what we can tell with AI, with biometric data, um, and how much those are connected to our emotions and to our connections as humans. Um, to me, like I love just being in those rooms right now. So mm, I'm wow, just, okay. that's that's like my current passion and fascination. Um, Dr. Ryordan, has done a ton of work around this you know he's got a clinic actually here in dallas and down in panama so yeah anything around that is kind of a fascination for me um i'm doing a lot of of work right now around flow research um and you know being in flow and so forth so Hmm. in fact i have my whole executive team we're doing the zero to dangerous coaching which is all around getting you in flow and so yeah those, those things are fascinating to me. I think with technology advancing as fast as it has, our brains are not able to keep up. You know, mm, it's yeah. so cool that I know what's going on day by day, hour by hour, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in China, what's happening in Russia. But in Dallas, Texas, my brain doesn't know what to do with that. So as humans, mm. we're going to have to figure out how we balance all this information and how we mm. continue to have connection with our kids, our family, and our communities mm. appropriately. So I know that's a mm. little deep, but that's, that's interesting. No, not at all. All. Yeah, yeah.
0: If, if, if you're interested in Flow, there's a guy in the UK called Simon Monday, and he has a podcast called Life Lessons, and he spoke to Johnny Wilkinson. Um, the English rugby player, um, and he kicked the, the winning goal against Australia in the 2003 World Cup. And he talks a lot about flow and getting into that mental state. It's, it's fascinating. Oh, really, awesome. really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Absolutely. But Like I say, if that's your thing, it's worth digging that out. Uh, it's available yeah, yeah, on yeah, yeah. every platform. You'll be able to find that. That'd be good. And then our second follow up oh. question is if you could, if you could meet somebody, um, anybody, who would you, who would you like to meet? Living, dead fictional yeah
1: um oh man there's so many great individuals so yeah i'd like to spend i mean this one's not gonna sound like super like off the rails but i would like to spend some time with tony robbins and just what he's done Mm -hmm. uh personally it's you know i i think we see kind of the outside veneer but when you go deeper on what he's achieved on impact for people you know, these 18-hour sessions that he's doing with individuals, whether you love his content or not, I think mm. what he's solved personally to be able to show up and be present and provide mm. that level of content, you know, is today is really interesting to me.
2: So you remember we saw hundreds of people at Excel walking yeah. across – Hot coals. Hot coals yeah. a Tony Robbins. Seminar. It like, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like this whole big queue of people. Yeah. It? it was quite like, what's that? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was in the car park. We walked past and we were like, what the heck's going on there? <laughs> yeah.
0: And then Tony Robbins was out there with all these people marching across it the was, hot coals. It was it was like there were
2: hundreds, weren't there? Hundreds and hundreds. And that of must have been
0: 12, 13 oh, years ago. A long time ago. Long it was time. a long, long time yeah. ago. Yeah. But no, he's a, he's an incredible guy. And I get what you say that from a, from a British point of view, quite a lot of people find him a bit full on. (laughs) it's a bit overwhelming for lots of british people it's not kind of the british way however a lot of the stuff that he talks about i think most people can take something from it to either a greater or lesser extent yeah Yeah. i'd
1: be much more interested in just like following in in the day of the life of him than even his content you know it's like how do you show up create content of that level and like what's Mm. your day-to-day because i think that's that's interesting i think whether Mm. we want to have the same level of impact or content we Mm. all want Mm. to um we all want to be present you know Mm. we all want to be able to like live out our vision and our dream to some degree so continuing to get better at that is is interesting to me Mm. by the way i've just loved um I love the interaction between you two. You guys are really fun to be with, by the way.
2: We spend a lot of time together. <laughs> We've yeah, traveled that many really times. Well, I think.
1: or really badly. So <laughs> you guys have go really well. well
2: 22 so. <laughs> years later, we're still in.
0: We're still going. We're still
2: going.
0: Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed our chat. With you. You've, been, you've been really, generous. Yeah, and like i say, I think getting that, that different perspective. Um, is always useful it's very easy to get stuck in your lane in your rut just looking at where you're at and I'd encourage all our listeners to jump on the the Facebook group look at your book look at some of the experiences of what's being done in other countries expand your mind yeah but it's that thing you said you know dentistry there's no need for people to compete uh, within dentistry it's compete with other industries compete with other service standards you know there's more than I was going to say it's not about getting a slice of a a pie it's making the pie bigger and I think the more that can be done to get people to Definitely. access dental services, there's more than enough for everybody. Yeah. I've, it's been a really, really interesting chat, Emmett. I really appreciate your time. It's been great. Thank yeah. you. All Thank so you much. very much. Appreciate you having me on. Excellent. Look after yourself. You. speak to you. I'm always a massive fan of learning, and I think quite often it's easy to stay quite insular yeah. and, and closed on what you, what access to information you have, and I think Emmett Scott just showed us that there's things happening in in America that are different. And I'm sure there'll be things in the UK that the Americans Mm. don't do, but fascinating and insightful hearing the way that the USA market operates.
2: Yeah, and it's not—it's quite interesting. It's not hugely different than than how we're seeing the UK market evolve. And also, uh, I tell you the one thing that really surprised me was, you sort of have, don't you, as a UK person who their teeth are quite often criticised by Mm. US people. You know, you think, what was it, that Austin Powers thing? Yeah. You know, about British teeth. And then he goes on to say that 60% of (laughs) of patients, uh, 60% of people in America don't go to the dentist. Yeah. Whereas I'm thinking, I think the last stat I looked at, it was probably about 50% in Mm. the UK, which really, really surprised me because you sort of imagine... 80% of huge patients a huge take yeah, t- it's just yeah. like oh wow that's not huge the one the one that i liked
0: was when he was he was saying about the the mindset shift that as a practice owner if you have an associate the person you're now serving is the associate yeah, yeah. and it's the associate that delivers for patients yeah. and i think that's quite a uh, well i, I don 't know for sure, but my hunch is that would be quite an unusual mm. mindset in u k dentistry that if you were a practice owner and you had an associate that your your delivery system is mm. to support the associate to deliver mm.
2: n- not the other way around i'll tell you what if you could get consider you know, the market is still predominantly sole practitioners mm. you know seventy five percent probably sole practitioners yeah. still. Uh, if you could, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because if people really probably added up the the cost of doing marketing, probably not very well. Websites, probably not very well. SEO, probably not at all. Accounting, probably not very well. Payroll, probably mm-hmm. not very well. HR, sort of like um, on reaction. If they really thought about, one, the cost of doing it, but the lost opportunity of mm-hmm. being in a chair... You could sort of see, well, actually, if you could provide a decent service to a practice at a, a reasonable cost, yeah. it could be attractive to those sole practitioners. I thought it was quite a fascinating.
0: Yeah, and and then it can, means that you can then start to park a lot of that admin yeah. and business function concentrate Which, on the bit that makes you the money and then you're back to the emotional intelligence yeah. that oh, you can make patients feel amazing yeah. and have a great
2: experience that
0: was really good <laughs> it really enjoyable great. chat it was really nice thank you for listening to this episode of dentology where we discuss the business of dentistry if you like what you heard please do subscribe where you found this episode that would be amazing and also follow us on instagram